Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. Welcome to this podcast series on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four. All right, we've covered the theory and now it's time to dig into the story itself and start applying what we've learned. Don your spyglasses and deerstalkers. Let's get started. The novel begins with an unexpected sight. Sherlock Holmes in the process of injecting cocaine and is observed by the increasingly impatient Dr. Watson. Sherlock Holmes took his bottle from the corner of the mantelpiece and his hypodermic syringe from its neat Morocco case. With his long, white, nervous fingers, he adjusted the delicate needle and rolled back his left shirt cuff. For some little time, his eyes rested thoughtfully upon the sinewy forearm and wrist all dotted and scarred with innumerable puncture marks. Finally, he thrust the sharp point home pressed down the tiny piston and sank back into the velvet-lined armchair with a long sigh of satisfaction. After witnessing Sherlock's decadent consumption of the cocaine, three times a day for many months, Watson snaps. Which is it today? I asked. Morphine or cocaine? Watson's irritability here is important as is the distinction between cocaine and morphine. Watson is perhaps Holmes's most loyal and dedicated friend, and his outburst marks a central tension in their friendship. We soon find out that Sherlock is taking the drug because he's bored. Without cases to entertain him, Holmes turns to the stimulation and comfort of a 7% solution. This is a fascinating moment for the series because it's perhaps one of the first moments where Sherlock shifts from an almost robotic genius to a human being with flaws. Watson's obvious disapproval of Sherlock's habit, as well as Sherlock's explanation as to why he takes the drug, showed the readers at the time that he is vulnerable in a way that he had not been presented before. It would be notable to readers familiar with Sherlock Holmes' story up to this point But it's important to remember that there would have been new readers encountering this character for the very first time. And without the foreknowledge that we modern readers have about one of Britain's more famous fictional characters. This is why, immediately after we are shown Sherlock dosing himself with cocaine, Dr Watson leaps into an account of everything which Sherlock is capable of. Count the cost. Your brain may, as you say, be roused and excited... But it is a pathological and morbid process, which involves increased tissue change and may at last leave a permanent weakness. You know, too, what a black reaction comes upon you. Surely the game is hardly worth the candle. Why should you, for a mere passing pleasure, risk the loss of those great powers with which you have been endowed? Remember that I speak not only as one comrade to another, but as a medical man to one for whose constitution he is to some extent answerable. This list, paired with the title of this chapter, The Science of Deduction, should serve as a clue to you what Conan Doyle's goal is with this chapter. 
Watson gives us a lot of information here to process. He's speaking not only as a friend, but a medical expert, who thus not only disproves of Holmes' indulgences on a personal and moral level, but a professional level. Precisely. Look at what Watson is concerned about. He is not really concerned with losing the personable aspects of Holmes, but is concerned that his continued use of these pollutive substances will leave his friend permanently weakened, the powers of his mind dulled and diluted. This is obviously directly in contrast with Holmes's position, who states repeatedly that his indulging of the cocaine bottle is in fact fuelled by the fact that Holmes finds the substance transcendentally stimulating and clarifying to the mind that its secondary action is a matter of small moment. Here we see perhaps the biggest anxiety surrounding Holmes as a character. He is willing to indulge his intellectual desires at the expense of his physical decline. The mind is all that matters. This is of course shocking to Dr Watson, who not only cannot understand Holmes's complete disregard for the risks of drug consumption, but is dealing with his own history of physical and psychological trauma. Watson mentions several times that he possesses a nervous constitution, ever since returning from his time as an assistant surgeon during the Afghan campaign. We're told in the first Holmes novel that Watson was wounded by a gunshot during his time in the army and developed a terrible fever and was consequently returned to Britain to recover. Watson's mentioning of his strained disposition can be read in relation to the psychological illness known as shell shock, or what we refer to as PTSD. That would become more frequent in the wake of the First World War. Watson's descriptions of suffering from shaken nerves in the first Holmes novel in 1887 could be seen as a precursor to this. And while Sherlock is sympathetic to Watson's history, he cannot abide the monotony of daily life without a puzzle to solve. After listening to Watson's protestations, Holmes reasons with his good friend, stating that for him, the lack of mental stimulation is as unbearable to him as the idea of bodily decline is to Watson. My mind, he said, rebels at stagnation. Give me problems, give me work, give me the most obtruse cryptogram or the most intricate analysis, and I am in my own proper atmosphere. I can dispense then with artificial stimulants, but I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave for mental exaltation. That is why I have chosen my own particular profession, or rather created it, for I am the only one in the world. This description is particularly important when viewed in relation to the creation and reception of detective fiction. Holmes's aligning of cocaine with the actual art of detection brings interesting and troubling parallels between addiction and detection. We even see this with Holmes's particular choice of the 7% solution. There is an obvious pun here where Holmes, unable to pursue a case to its solution, has chosen to indulge in an artificial solution, cocaine. Holmes's declaration that he has thus solved his personal crisis by inventing the role of the consulting detective, the last and highest court of appeal in detection, is particularly intriguing. Here Holmes differentiates between his peculiar brand of consultant detective and the official police force of Scotland Yard. 
Holmes declares that his service is fundamentally different to that of the official police. He is the man to turn to when all else are out of their depths, which, by the way, is their normal state. It is only due to his particular interests and power of intellect that the most confusing and unsolvable cases can be revealed. As he tells us, I examine the data as an expert and pronounce a specialist's opinion. I claim no credit in such cases. The work itself, the pleasure of finding a field for my peculiar powers, is my highest reward. Importantly, where for the official detective the drive to solve the crime is to catch the criminal, for Holmes this is merely a byproduct for his true motivation, which is to solve the puzzle. Think again about that quote. The work itself, the pleasure of finding a field for my peculiar powers, is my highest reward. It is the act of detection, the power of solution, that actually fuels Sherlock's interest not the judicial motive of incarceration, prosecution or justice. This also means that Holmes is not interested in the legacy of his detection. Indeed, he states repeatedly that he doesn't care about the glory or the credit. He only wishes to enjoy the thrill of the hunt, not for a criminal, but for the traces they leave behind. This, of course, provides another point of antagonism between Holmes and Watson. As Watson is the chronicler of Holmes's cases, he feels hurt that Holmes seems to not care about the stories that Watson is producing. At the end of the chapter, Holmes even goes so far as to describe both crime and existence as commonplace. Holmes thus places himself above the common indulgences of the everyman figure, and thus exists in a separate category to the hopelessly prosaic and essentially boring features of everyday life in Victorian London. Holmes's dismissal of the commonplace serves as a distinction between his particular form of detection and that of the common policeman. His description of crime as something that is commonplace is particularly interesting, as it reveals how, for Holmes, it is not the crime or even the story surrounding the crime that is of interest, but the facts of the case. Throughout his work, Holmes employs an exact science of detection. He states that there are three qualities necessary for the ideal detective. Observation and deduction. He then goes on to display his personal abilities of observation and deduction and the important differences between the two. Displaying his extraordinary genius for minutiae, he observes that Watson had been to the Wigmore Street post office this morning but deduction lets me know that when there, you dispatched a telegram. Sherlock can tell this because through observation, he notes that Watson has a little reddish mould on his shoe, which is likely from the Seymour Street post office, that has recently been experiencing refurbishments to the pavement, meaning that lots of red earth has been scattered around. As for deduction, Sherlock is able to tell that Watson was sending a telegram because he noticed Watson's desk was covered in various pieces of papers and stamps. To put it simply, observation reveals the what and the where, but deduction reveals the why and the how. But what of the third quality? That, Holmes tells us, is simply knowledge. Holmes reveals that not only does he possess a great intellect and power of observation, but also holds a plethora of information in his mind. Throughout his life, he has 
been guilty of several monographs. They are all upon technical subjects. Here, for example, is one upon the distinction between the ashes of the various tobaccos. In it, I enumerate a hundred and forty forms of cigar, cigarette, and pipe tobacco, with coloured plates illustrating the difference in the ash. He has also produced a book about the tracing of footsteps, with some remarks upon the uses of plaster of Paris as a preserver of impresses. Here, too, is a curious little work upon the influence of a trade upon the form of the hand, with lithotypes of the hands of slaters, sailors, cork cutters, compositors, weavers and diamond polishers. With this knowledge, his powers of observation and deduction are not simply based on clever guesswork, but are informed by a great range of facts and information. For many critics, Holmes's combination of observation, deduction and knowledge draws from advancements in forensic science that have begun to gain popularity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. At one point, Watson decides to test Holmes's almost arrogant belief in his own powers. Providing Holmes with his wristwatch, he asks Holmes to deduce who its previous owner was. Holmes is delighted to accept the challenge, stating, It would prevent me from taking a second dose of cocaine. And it does appear to be quite the challenge, as he remarks, There are hardly any data. The watch has been recently cleaned, which robs me of most suggestive facts. Without any physical data, Holmes is at first disheartened, but is still able to deduce the owner of the watch through his analysis of the watch's inscribed initials, belonging first to Watson's father, and a series of dents and scratches that indicate a careless previous owner, Watson's older brother. This little scene displays to us as readers the sheer power and impressiveness of Holmes's cognitive faculties. The delight and shock of Dr Watson, our narrator, further serves to exaggerate the powers of Holmes. As Watson takes delight in Holmes's powers, so we also become hypnotised and impressed at his mental prowess. The opening chapter is thus fundamental in bringing together the thrill of sensation fiction, the power of mystery and the search for truth, with the growing field of medical and criminal sciences. Join us in episode 6, where we find out who or what it is that saves Holmes from such a dreary, dismal, unprofitable world, as the case of missing treasure piques Holmes's interest enough to lure him away from the cocaine bottle. Thanks for listening. See you in the next pod. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.